Ahoy, and welcome in to another mind-expanding episode of Not Allowed to Die, your podcast about mental health, where I, Dan Makler, social worker and life enthusiast, answer your questions about mental health. Alongside me, as always, is Mariska, the three-toothed Patterdale Terrier, and she has she's done licking her paws. We went out for a walk earlier, and she's feeling pretty good. And when Mariska's feeling good, you know why. It's because you're rating, you're following, you're reviewing, and you're telling a friend. And Mariska loves it when you do all of those things. Mariska was reminding me earlier that I do need to make sure I'm making a plug for Pause for Patrick all the time. So remember, this podcast is brought to you in part to draw attention to Pause for Patrick. So if you know a young person, and remember, all of us are young people in our own way, who could benefit from an emotional support animal, go to pauseforpatrick.org and check out our website and see what you could do. And if you're a person who wants to help out, remember, we're always looking for volunteers. So Mariska and I are super excited because you know we love having guests. And today we have Becca Ferguson who is a licensed professional counselor and real life human being. Becca brings her love for storytelling and teaching to every environment she's in. When people ask her for advice, it's coming from years of experience, personally and professionally. Becca's main goal is for people to know that they aren't alone. In her spare time, Becca drowns out the intrusive thoughts with trash TV, playing with her cats and hanging out with her incredible husband. So Becca, all the listeners know that I have been so excited to have someone, a practitioner of EMDR on, and we're going to get into talking about that as well as, you know, the other things you do, because you're not just an EMDR practitioner, but we're so, so happy to have you. And so if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to, to get where you are today. Yeah. Well, first of all, this is super exciting to be on this podcast because, you know, I guest on podcasts um, pretty often, but there's rarely a podcast that I guest on that I'm like super, super pumped to be on. So this was one that I was like, oh my gosh, this is way down my, like on like my calendar over here. And I'm like, I need to get on this podcast. Um, I know I have like three or four clients that I'm going to be like, Hey, um, listen, listen to this real quick. Um, you know, because sometimes our clients don't listen to us during therapy. Right. <laughs> um, so I'm really excited to be on this podcast. I love everything that it stands for. And I love the pause for Patrick. I know I talked to you about that when we talked on the phone, but I absolutely love that. Um, so yeah, a little bit about me. Um, you know, I'm a cat mom and a wife and a therapist. Those are, you know, three of my big titles, but um, I'm also a survivor myself of trauma. I have post-traumatic stress disorder and um, that plays a big part in why I'm a therapist. Um, you know, being a therapist was never the goal <laughs> ever. Um, if you would have talked to me when I was in third grade and I can honestly vividly remember this, which is super terrifying and cool at the same time. But I can remember sitting at the lunch table when I was in third grade and telling people, I have to go to seminary for 10 years so I can become an ordained minister in the Methodist church. And like, what third grader thinks about that stuff? Like nobody thinks about that. Um, but that was me. And I, I did end up getting accepted into seminary after college. Um, I became a youth minister. And after about nine months, I was like, I do not love teenagers enough to <laughs> work, or, you know, in this environment. And it's not just, it wasn't the teenagers, it was the parents of the teenagers. <laughs> and so um, I just realized in that environment, I could not be authentic. I couldn't be real. I couldn't talk to people about suicide. I couldn't talk to them about sex, drugs, rock and roll, all the things, because it wasn't acceptable in that environment to talk about it. And so I mainly became a therapist. Um, 
because of that and because my therapist told me to become a therapist. <laughs> Um, he was like, if you don't ever do anything in your life, become a therapist. And I was like, okay. Um, and so, um, yeah. And, you know, this whole conversation about suicide and, you know, working with people, the day that I applied to go to grad school to become a therapist was the day that Chester Bennington died by suicide. And so, um, he was the main reason that I decided to go into this field just because um, he's a reminder that you can listen to words, but you can never hear them um, if you aren't really taking the chance. So he is um, my biggest um, reason why I do what I do. Well, I'm so grateful that you did decide to make that turn. And I'm very grateful to your therapist for suggesting it. And it reinforces to me, I have a, a couple of clients right now that I think are going to be great therapists someday. And I have a few of my former ones who are social workers and therapists. And I think there's an advantage that you bring to it because when you do have that experience yourself, that you can speak to people from a more genuine place and you can give that example of you can get through this. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, and obviously you're also bringing humor and affection and warmth. Because do you think, <laughs> and again, there's not necessarily for, for everybody who's listening, you know, whatever kind of therapist works for you is great. For me, I can't be anything but who I am all the time. And right. I think there's, if you're looking for, if you're saying, well, the therapist I worked with is just very clinical and very removed, that's great for some people. But if that's not the right thing for you, reach out and find a therapist who's going to bring more of their personality into it. Yeah, that's a big part of what I do because I mean, I, I I think that therapist shopping is really really important, and I tell all of my new clients when they come into a session with me, like, if you decide that you do not want to be my client, I am not going to get butt hurt about it. I can promise you that. I'm like, go shopping for a therapist. At no point in time should a therapist ever make you feel guilty for wanting to see what other therapists are out there. Now, usually because I say that, people are like, wow, Beck is amazing, which I have to agree. I think I'm pretty fantastic. Um, but yeah, I think therapist shopping is so, so, so critical. Well, and there are different lessons, just like we go to school and we take different classes from different professors. Mm -hmm. There may be different therapists that you need at different stages of your journey. Yes, and absolutely. Again, one of the reasons why I, again, I'm so excited to have you on is because I find myself often referring and encouraging people to go seek out an EMDR therapist mm -hmm. when I'm hitting a block with them that I feel like we can't get any further. Right now, I can think of two clients that I'm dealing with where you don't ever want to open a door you can't close. Right. And often when dealing with trauma, people are having difficulty moving forward and processing their trauma because they're afraid if I open this door, I'm going to start having a lot of bad dreams. I'm going to start having flashbacks, feelings, and I don't know how to handle that. Mm -hmm. And then that's what I find myself saying. Maybe it's time for you to consider learning how to close that door a little bit and seeking out a practitioner of EMDR. So can you tell me a little bit about how you stumbled upon EMDR and how and what your thoughts yeah. are about how that whole, you know, soup to nuts about how the process of EMDR works? So when I was in grad school, um, we were in the group therapy class that we did, which was my favorite class by far that I took when I was in grad school. We were all assigned a population that we had to work with, um, you know, a hypothetical population. <laughs> and so everyone in the room was, you know, that person. I loved being able to play a little kid for all the therapists that wanted to be like children's therapists. I was like, no, poo-poo on you and all this kind of stuff. It was great. Um, 
Um, I was the rebel child, obviously. Um, but um, the population that I was assigned was working with veterans that had PTSD. And although I have never worked in a VA in my prof professional career, when I was in grad school and I had to study this population and study PTSD and study how to talk to people with PTSD, um, I, I really dove into it head first. And as I was doing the group and my professors watching me interact with all the other students after it was done, she just looked at me. She was like, Becca, wow, what a gift you have talking to people that have PTSD. Like you can really communicate with them. And I was like, well, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, hair flip. Okay. Okay. Um, but I mean, really, it was something that I had never considered um, working with post-traumatic stress disorder until I started seeing clients. And then I noticed, like, I am giving everyone PTSD and anxiety diagnosis. Like, what is up with this? And, um, you know, in the world that we were living in at that point in time, I mean, everything was just so chaotic. Um, when I was in grad school and after I graduated in my internship, it was around 2000. 18, 2019. And so, I mean, think about how many changes were happening in 2018, 2019, right? And then come 2020 when COVID hits and then all of a sudden everything just goes to shit. Um, excuse my French, we oui, oui. Um, But, you know, I, um, I, when I'm working with these people that had PTSD, EMDR at the clinic that I was interning ship at, in interning ship at words, not working, interning at, that works. Um, everybody there was EMDR certified. And so they were like, Becca, you like working with trauma. You should get EMDR certified. And I took the class. I really liked it. It was something that I was like, wow, this is really cool. I also, because I have post-traumatic stress disorder, what is the number one thing that people with post-traumatic stress disorder love to do? They love to get over their their own trauma, right? They just are like, can I just get over it? And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Hate to break it to you, but this is going to suck for a little bit. And so as a student and a, you know, client myself, I was like, I want to do EMDR because um, I want to get over my stuff and I don't want to feel this way. I want the quickest way. I don't want to work on it that much. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want people to know about it. X, Y, Z. And, um, I actually sought out an EMDR therapist and I'm sure as a social worker, you can relate with me on this. Being a good therapist, it's really hard to hear stories about bad therapists, right? <laughs> and so this will make you cringe for a little bit. Um, but I went to go see a therapist that was EMDR certified. And he was trying to convince me that my brain was telling me or my, my brain was blocking trauma of being sexually assaulted and I didn't actually remember it happening. And so EMDR was going to bring all this up for me. And I was like, I, I don't remember any of that happening. I don't think it happened. Oh no, it, it definitely happened. He just kept telling me it, it definitely happened to you. I can tell that it definitely happened to you. And so I'm like, well, who was it? And he tells me who it was. And I'm like, how do you know these things? And so I obviously did not pursue therapy with that therapist anymore. I can't even remember that guy's name. Um, but it, which good for him. <laughs> I don't remember it. Um, but 
I just remember, you know, questioning for a long time, well, was I drugged? Was this something that is like I've repressed? And so EMDR really fascinated me, this idea that I could get these repressed memories that were making me make choices in my now life, right? Um, Because of these memories that I have blocked out. And so that was originally why I decided to do EMDR. A, because at the time when I got the training, not a lot of people were certified in it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want the people that were certified in it that gave me the bad experience like I had to continue to be the ones that people went to (laughs) for EMDR therapy. Um, And so maybe it was a little bit of a God complex thing that was going on at some part because I was just like, I want to do it right. Um, but as EMDR has evolved over the years, um, I've definitely adapted it into my own way to be able to help clients in a way that's more flexible for them in their own trauma healing, just because I know what it's like to have flashbacks and nightmares and triggers and all those things. So I I take it really easy with my clients in the room. I don't, you know, pressure them to do anything that they're uncomfortable with. When, you know, as you described that, you're hitting a lot of what we talked about before, a lot of misconceptions about EMDR. Mm-hmm. But first of all, that it's going to pull out all these repressed memories that aren't really there or create things that aren't there, that it's going to be quick and easy and or that it's going to just be, OK, it's eight to 12 sessions and you're done with it and you're not going to have to necessarily um, engage and talk about things. Mm-hmm. So what are some other misconceptions before we start to get into what EMDR DR is? What are some things that you're seeing clients coming through the door thinking that EMDR is going to be? and some misconceptions that they have about it. Oh, yes. Please let me go ahead and clarify this for everybody that's listening that wants an EMDR therapist. Um, If you have watched TikTok, which we know that a good chunk of people out there probably have, okay, Um, minus the people where TikTok has gotten banned, I am so sorry, (laughs) okay? Um, But I... If you have watched anything and then you have decided to self-diagnose yourself with um, self-diagnose yourself. Yep. That's another sentence um, with PTSD um, before seeing a professional. And then you decide that you want to seek EMDR. I truly believe that there are some ways that self-diagnosis can be healthy in some ways where it can be unhealthy. Right. I think that most therapists can agree with that. But seeking an EMDR therapist in particular does not mean that on day one, you will go in there and you will start EMDR therapy and then be able to get over your trauma. There is such a big process. And I actually brought with me today my training binder that I had from EMDR therapy. And if you see inside of it and you can hear it on the podcast there's so many pages okay like at least 300 pages that i've printed out and stole from multiple copy machines um you know across my career for different resources um but there's so many different phases things that we have to do to check on your safety um is emdr a safe process for you to do because um you know, I've had clients that have had panic attacks in the middle of doing EMDR therapy, Um, which, you know, having panic attacks in the middle of therapy, I love it when my clients have panic attacks in the middle of therapy, because I get to work through it with them. I'm I'm a nerd like that. Um, But 
Um, don't worry, you don't come to my therapy office and have a panic attack. You see them all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, yes, have a panic attack today so we can have a breakthrough. Oh my god. Um, but no, that's not what I do. Um, so I definitely, um. I think there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. So the biggest misconception is that if I go find an EMDR therapist, because I have decided that I have PTSD, the first thing that the therapist is going to have to do is determine whether or not your self-diagnosis is correct. You know, um, there are a lot of people that have gone through traumatic events that do not have PTSD. And, um, I think that blows a lot of people's minds when it's like, well, this person was in this environment for how long and they don't have PTSD, but then this person does and they do. Like, how do you know the difference? And I mean, our good old purple book, our DSM, or now it's, I guess it's a blue book. I mean, who knows what color it is now? Um, you know, it's, it definitely helps us determine whether or not you meet that criteria. It's it, finding EMDR is all about you know, what you can handle, what you can't handle. Should we do extended sessions? Should we do shorter sessions? Should we do traditional EMDR therapy? Should I do adapted EMDR therapy? There's so many questions. And sometimes it takes five or six sessions to find whether or not EMDR is even going to be helpful for you in the first place. So um, yeah, you're not going to go find an EMDR therapist and start and then get over your trauma in five or six sessions. It's just not happening. And I think that's what the EMDR therapist that I saw was doing because he wanted me to list all of my traumas on session one when I wasn't even certain that I had a trauma disorder, believe it or not. Um, but yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't sure about it. So it was definitely difficult to navigate. Well, again, it sounds like from what you're saying that it still remains the key for all therapy working is trust and relationship. Mm -hmm. And so in, in initial sessions, it's going to be a getting to know you and it's getting to frame out, you know, what are the goals of this therapy? What are we treating and what are we trying to do? Mm -hmm. So when, when a person does walk in, is that is that the beginning of the process for you when they are initially starting out? They walk in for the first session and it's saying, OK, let's get to know each other. Let's define the problem, figure out what we're working with and see what you're hoping to get out of it. Is that mm -hmm. where you're beginning? Yeah. Um, so normally in my first session that I have with clients, I tell them like you can't honestly, my camera is facing the blankest wall in my office. I'm not even lying to you. OK, but like my office is filled with like pictures of my cats um, and, you know, my diplomas are behind my clients because I don't want them to be like, oh, she's so that. <laughs> OK, um, but I have like my teddy bears on the wall, my little mermaid play set. I have like Pooh Bears, Hundred Acre Woods over here. And um, I have like all of my Winnie the Pooh characters on my couch and like a weighted stuffed animal. I have Bob the Bobcat, you know, little things like that. And so I the first thing that happens when a client comes into my office and they sit down and they're here for EMDR therapy. It's like their nervous as all get out, right? Um, because they're like, I'm about to unpack everything today. And I'm like, no. And I tell them, I say, I just want you to sit here and I want you to observe what's in the room. You know, um, don't look at my computer wires because they're all over the place and they're messy. Um, but I tell people, observe what's in the room. Ask me questions. What do you have to ask me right now? And normally they're like, are those your cats? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yes. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, it's like the photo that I have of my cats that's right back here. It looks like they're like in a stoner band because their eyes are like 
all halfway shut and everything. And so they're like, it looks like they're in a stoner band. And then we end up talking about stoner cats for like 10 minutes. Um, but, you know, a big part of them is getting comfortable asking questions. I, I tell them, you know, I'm not your traditional therapist. I say I used to work in a halfway house. I've heard every single word that has ever existed in the history of all words. Um, feel free to use whatever language, um, you know, is good for you and acceptable. And then I get people cussing like a sailor in this room and they're just like, oh, this is the first place I can be myself. And so this initial session is all about me trying to determine what we're working with and who the person is. Because I think in therapy, um, who you are in your first session is what I'm treating, right? It's not just about the symptoms. It's about what I'm noticing. Like, what are your hands doing? What are your feet doing? What are you looking at? What, like, are you asking me about my cats or my teddy bears? Are you asking me about my Winnie the Pooh characters? Like, what are you talking to me about? So you could call me like a mind reader or something like that, if that's what you want to do. But it's all about trying to find where people are comfortable in the space and making sure they're comfortable in the space. So there is this, you know, again, the feeling or commonly for people who have not been involved in the MDR, that you are at some point in your process, though, going to have to be a bit triggered mm -hmm. so that you can see if like the eye motion. So can you get a little bit into how does it actually work with moving, does moving your eyes in a certain pattern when you're yeah. dysregulated help reset the brain chemicals? Can you talk a little bit about that just mechanically? What, what how does it work? Yeah. So um, there's a couple different methods that you can use. You can use like a therapist's fingers, like they put two fingers together and then they move back and forth. Um, and the speed of the fingers, you know, the faster that you go, the more that you're reprocessing, the slower that you go, the more that you're installing, which is, you know, the reprocessing is the trauma. Well, the installing is when we're working with the positive cognitions. And so, um, you know, there's the one of the mechanics we have what I call buzzies. Um, they're called tactile, um, tactile buzzies. Sure. Um, and they're like these little pods that you hold in your hand and they vibrate. And I always like hand them to my client before we start. And I say like, you can adjust the intensity on it. Um, and they, you know, buzz back and forth in your hand. So you have one in each hand and it's like buzz, 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 buzz. And I adjust the speed. So if I want it faster and I want them to reprocess, then it's like buzz, 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 buzz. If I want it slower, then I'm like buzz, buzz, <laughs> you know? And so it goes back and forth. There's also some therapists that use a light bar. And that one is just like, a, it's literally a light bar where a dot moves back and forth on the light bar and clients look at it and that's what they're focusing on and their eyes are moving back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Um, and again, the therapist is adjusting the speed. Um, we have other ways that we do it over telehealth as well, where we ask the client to put what's called a butterfly pose and they put um, hands like they're hugging themselves across their chest and um, you just get your hand and just tap um, very clearly on your shoulders. Um, and usually the therapist will do it with the client. So the client is mimicking the speed of it. And so it's like if the therapist is going really fast, then we want the client to go really fast. Um, things like that. You can also do it on your legs. Um, sometimes I put have the 
and clients put their buzzies underneath their thighs because we find clients that they do get tearful in the middle of session. So I'm like, have your hands free for some Kleenex. It's about to get snotty up in here, you know? And so it's like, it depends on where the client is comfortable and how the client is comfortable doing it. You know, the therapist in the room can also do tapping as well, where they like will tap on their thighs. But I work specifically with a lot of women that have sexual assault trauma. And so I don't see a lot of clients that want to do touching or tapping as a part of their EMDR just because it's um, it's not fun to reprocess things about people touching you while your therapist is touching you. Mm -hmm. And so um, usually I just stick with the buzzies um, because that's what's best um, for my clients. And sometimes it's traditional and sometimes it's more about um, having a conversation while we're doing it, whatever the client responds most to. So yesterday I was having a conversation with a, uh, a former student of mine and she's now a professional out in the field that she finally with her therapist has started opening the door of talking about some of her trauma it's so awful for her right now. She's in this stuck space and there's a lot more that needs to be unpacked, but she, again, is in this space where she's horribly triggered by the idea of even talking about any more of it. Mm -hmm. And so I was talking, encouraging her, perhaps it's time for her to seek out um, an EMDR cl clinician, because again, that idea of she can't, she can't figure out how to close the door again. She was asking, and I, I did not know the answer. I don't think, to my understanding, she's not gonna have to go through the gritty details of everything she's gone through. She's just going yeah. to have to share enough to, to get herself to an unregulated state so she can learn the techniques to re-regulate. Is that correct? Or so how does that work? Yeah. So um, everyone is different. Okay. And there's some clients where I'm like, I need to know what you're thinking, because if I don't, then I don't know if I'm going in the right direction. Um, normally I can tell, like, I'll have clients lay down on the couch and cuddle up in a blanket because like, I feel like when they get into burrito phase, it makes it a little bit easier for them to ground themselves. Um, usually I can tell their tears kind of slow down. Um, their breathing starts regulating. They're telling me that they're not seeing things that are extremely traumatic anymore and they're able to slow things down. But um, the way that we work through this and prevent that from even happening um, to where they're leaving triggered is we have two things. It's called a container and a safe space. And the container, the idea of it is like, okay, we have reached our limit with our time for EMDR therapy today. We're going to get all of these bad things that we've talked about that we haven't completed processing. We're going to lock them away in a container that the therapist and the client both have access to. And we know that we can access it again, but we're just not going to access it until our next therapy session. And then our safe space, we install that using the same eye movements. Both of these things are installed using the eye movements um, where we use like a word that takes us back to a calmer place. Um, so that way throughout the week, if we start to get triggered or we start to remember something, put it in the container and then go to our safe space. And that's what really, those two things are developed even before we start the reprocessing because there's no way that I'm gonna reprocess with a client um, until I know that they have something 
that's going to keep them safe. Um, and then, and some clients, like, I feel like I'm an exception. So I'll use myself an ex as an example, because I have done to be an EMDR clinician, you have to participate in EMDR. And so um, I want you to imagine 40 therapists in a room doing EMDR therapy, all crying like little babies, because we're bringing up all of our trauma. Um, it's kind of impossible not to. Um, but, you know, EMDR has been a really complicated thing for me because it did bring up a lot of stuff. Um, it did help me. It was very insightful. But like working with my therapist, um, we tried to create my safe space. And I was so triggered creating my safe space because I it, like I have traumatic memories associated with everything. My PTSD is so bad. And so one of the safe spaces that we came up with is the Hundred Acre Woods because I love Winnie the Pooh. And so I was like, this is good childhood stuff. I don't have bad memories with Winnie the Pooh. This will be great. And then, you know, she's walking me through it. We have Winnie the Pooh music playing in the background. Everything's great. And then I get out the little tree trunk door and then I'm like, in my head, visually seeing myself murdering all of these Winnie the Pooh characters. And I'm like, I'm like, no, I'm like, I love Pooh and Digger. Like, why are they so bloody? And so we ended up changing instead of working on my safe space first, what we ended up doing was trying to figure out why I felt like I had to murder something that I loved so much. And it was the idea of if I hurt it first, it won't hurt me. So like I couldn't come up with my safe space first. And when you have a really good therapist that knows what they're doing with EMDR, they'll start to realize like, okay, we can't create this safe space until we understand why, um, you know, everything is triggering for them. And so, yeah, I mean, like it, it's going to bring up stuff. And there was about two or three weeks there where I was like, Winnie the Pooh isn't safe for me anymore. Um, and it's not calm for me anymore. But then it got to a point where I was like, I am, I just had to tell myself it's self-sabotage. That's all it is. You know, I hurt it first, so it doesn't hurt me. I'm, I'm tired of things hurting me. You know, I'm tired of being the victim. And, um, I, I was raised to believe that you weren't allowed to be a victim. So in order to not be a victim, what do you got to do? hurt everything first, right? Um, I promise you I'm not a mass murderer. Um, <laughs> I have worked yeah, through all this. Yeah, no, <laughs> but you know, it's it it's a different journey for everyone for sure. And when you have a good EMDR therapist, they know that. And so they're able to make that safe. And now a man so uh, six months after EMDR therapy has been completed, is it like a toolbox that the person could theoretically go to and use that emotion uh, like on their own if they're feeling triggered about things? And can they use it for things other than just PTSD? Can they use it for just feeling like an anxiety attack, a panic attack when they're really just regulated? Yes. Yes and no. Okay. So um, I had one client in particular that I did traditional EMDR therapy with and it helped her. Um she was able to come to some realizations, but what helped her the most was the installing of the positive cognitions and the slow movements. And so for her, what I ended up doing is like, 
she graduated from therapy because she was like, I feel really good. I'm actually making like awesome steps in my life. And I'm like, yes, we did it, you know? And so when she would have anxiety or she would come and check in with me every, you know, two months or so, it was like, she would do the butterfly pose on the anxious days. And then, you know, I just told her slow taps with your breath, you know, think about that safe space with the slow, slow taps and then come up with that trigger word. Um, you know, whatever it is that reminds you of your safe space. Um, and if safe is a triggering word for clients, then calm, whatever your calm place is. Right. Um, because there's not a lot of people that have ever felt safe, especially when they have, you know, anxiety or trauma. Um, but yes, it, it can be helpful as a toolbox individually. And I say also, yes, but then I say no, because there's a lot of people that shouldn't <laughs> practice any sort of EMDR stuff by themselves. And there are a lot of programs out there that you can like buy a subscription to and watch a ball move back and forth on a computer screen and do EMDR in the comfort of your own home. Do not buy those programs. If you have never worked with a therapist, they are lying to you. Okay. Um, and they are just trying to get you. I mean, like I could talk to you every all day about programs that you shouldn't buy that are lying to you. Um, but it's like, um, doing it at home, if you don't, it, like, if this explains it, I don't even do EMDR therapy on myself, right? Um, I'm trained in it. I've used it with multiple clients. I have the buzzies. I have all the equipment that I need. I have an incredible husband um, that could probably turn it on and off every 30 seconds, but there is no way that I'm doing it to myself because I need a licensed clinician in the room with me to notice what they're trained to notice. Um, so it's not safe if you haven't processed all of the core stuff and we haven't worked on self-compassion or we haven't worked on building um, your own autonomy and you're not in a safe environment physically or mentally at that point. So um, there's a lot of things that you're, you need to listen to your therapist and what your therapist suggests for you to do after you complete EMDR therapy. So for many people, graduating from EMDR therapy is more about having moved the trauma from a place where it's actively still triggering to a place where that, that process this has been healed from some new ways of thinking about the trauma have been installed. So it's less likely to be triggering you as often. Is that, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah. So EMDR has, um, I mean, honestly, it's really not rocket science when you think of it, but it's like um, you have two different sides. You have your positive cognitions and your negative cognitions. You come in and you see what negative cognition you associate a particular memory with. And then you go back, you do the reprocessing and you're going back, 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 back. What's the core memory that's making me think this? And it's like you're basically climbing Mount Everest. You get to the top of Mount Everest. And then all of a sudden you're like, that wasn't my fault. And you're like, no shit. I told you that. And then you climb back down. Right. And so, um, you know, it can be any cognition. Um, it, when I did one of the other times I did EMDR, I have a huge fear of throwing up. I, I don't know why. Um, it's just 
no one likes it. I think it was just installed because my mother like left us and abandoned us whenever we got the stomach flu. She was like, your father will deal with it. I'm going to a hotel room. Um, but so I was just like, oh, women aren't supposed to like throw up. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Um, but, you know, in doing EMDR therapy, it took me all the way back to a memory from when I lost my beloved stuffed animal when I was three. And so it's like, what in the world does me losing my most beloved horsey have to do anything with my fear of throwing up? Well, it's because I didn't have control over what happened to it. You know, we found out, we did find it a couple days later after I was screaming like a banshee um, for, you know, three days straight and my parents had to go dumpster diving. But the janitor was like, oh, this is an old toy in a daycare. I'm going to throw it away. And, um, you know, I was like, no, it's horsey. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, wow, we learned through EMDR, EMDR therapy that Becca has a major control problems. When she doesn't know what's happened to something, then all of a sudden she absolutely gets triggered. Um, so it's a, sometimes you find memories that are completely unrelated or that you would think are unrelated, but really are coming up with a core concept. And then that positive cognition can be installed of, you know, I don't have to have control of, of everything. Um, I am allowed to, you know, let other people do things in front of me without me telling them how they have to live their lives, which, you know, if you ask my husband is still something that I have not mastered on um, because I, I definitely um, can't watch him put up Christmas lights. It's like a disaster waiting to happen. I just, I'm like, just give it to me, just give it to me. But, you know, working on it, working on it for sure. Well, so, you know, I find myself curious, let's say a person doesn't have PTSD, but they do have those negative cognitions and they just have like a lot of negative self-loathing and they need those positive cognitions. Mm -hmm. Can EMDR therapy be used for a person who isn't having flashbacks? They're not having dreams. They're not having the physical like sensations because they, they, if, if they have trauma, maybe they don't even remember what it was, or maybe they don't even have it. Maybe they're mm -hmm. stuck in that spot, but they are having this battle with the negative cognitions and where did it come from? Where did they learn that? Can EMDR be helpful for people who, who don't have PTSD but are in that situation? Oh, yeah, 100%. It can be helpful. Um, but I also, you know, I'm also an ACT therapist as well, as far as like acceptance and commitment therapy, for those of you that don't know the acronym. And, um, you know, I, I think that the negative and positive cognition sheet that I have is um, very wrinkly and has been sitting on my side table that a lot of clients have touched. It's probably not COVID safe, um, but you know, um, there's sometimes in sessions that I'm just like, I, I hear a client and they're just like, and this happened and this happened and the shoe is always going to drop and blah, 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 blah. And then I pull out my two sheets of paper and I'm like, pick a negative cognition, any negative cognition, which one are you feeling right now? And then they tell me like 10 of them. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, pick like three <laughs> instead of 10. Like, I know we really hate ourselves right now, but just pick like three. And then I'm like, out of those three, which one is the um, most difficult one that you're processing right now? And um, you know, they tell me one and then I say, now look right across the street and what's the positive cognition? And they tell me, and I'm like, does that seem believable? And they'll be like, 
hell no, that doesn't seem believable. And I'm, and I just tell them like, well, what gets in the way, you know, and we have more of a conversation. And those are some of the conversations, especially if I've done EMDR therapy with them in the past, that I'll go and get the buzzies and I'll tell them put one under each thigh and let's just talk. Well, um, we have those buzzies rolling. And if they start getting to a place where they're just like, and my mom said this, and then my dad said this, then I like turning up the speed all the way and their thighs are like and I'm like it's like an electric chair but like way calmer you know <laughs> so I'm just going all over the place trying to figure out where the cognition is and then when I hear them start to talk a little bit more positively then I turn the speed down and um, then they're like oh man that really isn't that bad is it and I'm like mm -mm, no and uh, and they they can come back to it. And so, yeah, it's a, uh, it, it definitely can change and help many, many, many people. But, you know, I, from what I hear you saying, it's, you're probably best off if you're finding a clinician that EMDR isn't their only thing mm -hmm. so that they can use EMDR as a tool that they're working with. And that might be how you start, but in a perfect, in a perfect world, finding a clinician that can also bring other tools in and say, hey, right now we're at a stage where maybe we've finished the MDR aspect of things and you've learned those skills, but maybe what you're dealing with right now is more something that ACT therapy or other kinds of modalities might work better with. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I... Um... In my personal journey with EMDR, you know, creating my safe space, I actually did a three hour EMDR intensive with my therapist just because my trauma brain really doesn't allow me to do things slowly. Um, and I, a lot of people with PTSD struggle with that as well, you know, like got to get over it fast, which, you know, getting over it, as we know, is not ever possible. We have to get through it. And I didn't want to do that. And I was very resistant during EMDR, especially being trained in EMDR. I was like, you're not moving the buzzies fast enough. I'm not processing. Stop. And so it's like, I, she was like, well, we know we have control problems. <laughs> um, and I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I had to integrate when I was doing my own journey in EMDR. It's like my therapist was like, we got to take a step back. And she started doing ACT therapy with me, a lot more talk stuff, a lot of mindful self-compassion. And I've never been a mindfulness person just because I'm like, that's a whole bunch of hooey. Um, I'm like, I'm not sitting here staring at a wall. I was raised in church. And so I was like, well, prayer never did shit for me either. So, you know, I'm like, I'm not sitting here staring at a wall, hoping that something happens. And um, so I just was like, trying to figure out how to be mindful, trying to figure out how to love myself, like what are the real roadblocks? Because I think another misconce misconception with EMDR is that you just come in with a whole bunch of trauma and then it gets done with all in one setting. But really we're about identifying a particular target when it comes to EMDR therapy. And so um, that's where it's like, this may take weeks before we even start EMDR because I need you to start feeling a little bit more better, a little bit more better, sure, um, about yourself. People are going to think that people, clinicians from Arkansas just don't know how to use sentences. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you start to feel a little bit better about yourself um, first so that when we engage in EMDR, it's 
I'm able to challenge you and ask you questions and um, have a good conversation with you and and kind of go back and forth a little bit more um, instead of you feeling like, hey, I can't talk about any of this stuff because I'm I'm not comfortable being vulnerable. And sometimes it takes months before people can allow themselves to be vulnerable because they've never been able to do that in their lives. And then they're coming to therapy when they're in their 20s or 30s. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do we undo 30 years of not being allowed to be vulnerable? Um, talking, <laughs> building a relationship, right? So it, it takes a lot of time. Well, that's what I, you know, I have uh, that that former student of mine right now, and she's just, you know, why should I believe anything will be different? I've been carrying this weight for so long. And I said, well, yes, you've been carrying that weight for so long, but how many hours have you actually spent, you know, learning to heal? You know, you've, oh gosh, you've, yeah. been, you've been surviving and in pain for so many years, but you haven't been giving practicing that self-compassion. And I'm finding with a number of my clients right now, the biggest challenge is intellectually, they get it. They know that they're giving themselves special rules. They know that they're being unfair. Mm-hmm. They're saying, I, I can see, you know, what what's being laid out there of why I don't deserve to feel terrible. And yet, mm-hmm. even though they know it intellectually, they're just not feeling it because they're having that. That's where that block is. If, if truly going back and saying all my life experience is me getting kicked in the teeth mm-hmm. and all like I know, even if I heal from this moment, I'm still going to feel terrible again. And so how in your experience does EMDR, does it help them to feel like there is more hope that they can, like they can, they can stop this flow of yeah. life, just kicking them in the, in the cycle because often one having experienced one trauma makes us more likely to have future traumas. Mm-hmm. And so that, like, we don't have to keep inviting these, we can grow a better sense of antenna for danger and things like that, because we, we can have autonomy over our bodies and things like that. So have you found that you're able to generate a little bit of that hope? So um, I'm going to answer this question with a little bit of edumacation. Um, okay. So we learn um, about the window of tolerance when we're doing any sort of trauma therapy. Um, And it's something that I I love teaching to clients, but the window of tolerance, I want you to imagine this little yellow box. Okay. And this little yellow box is our calm, cool, collected and connected space. Okay. This is where we are disputing limiting beliefs. We are able to, you know, collect ourselves and face the world and understand like we are not our negative cognitions, right? But right above this window and right below our window is our hyper arousal, which is fight or flight, and our hypo arousal, which is freeze and fawn, okay? And I rarely talk about fawn when I'm teaching because fawn is like the level that we get to when we've been in fight or flight for a long, long time. And we have a very abusive narcissistic characters in our life, right? Um, But when we go through these fight, flight, freeze um, areas, sometimes we can get so comfortable in our survival mode, right? Um, One of the things that I have noticed in my own journey in working with people that don't like these uncomfortable feelings is you need to understand that being in fight or flight is only comfortable because you are pleasing everybody else around you, right? You are making everybody else comfortable because you're suffering, right? And, um, So people are like, oh, when I get over all of my trauma, again, get over it, okay, then I'm going to be calm, cool, collected, connected, and nothing's going to happen. 
one thing that I've noticed in working with so many trauma clients is that, yes, we can be calm, cool, collected, and connected inside of our window of tolerance, but there's also one key thing that's inside of it, um, and that's grief, right? It's grieving the autonomy that we lost, the loss of our physical body, the loss of our mind, the loss of people, the loss of animals, the loss of everything, right? And um, last night, I found myself really triggered um, because I had a kitten that I got my senior year of college that died three months after I got her. Um, when I went to go get her spayed, she was allergic to the anesthesia, and she died in, a, in surgery. And, you know, the negative cognition that I've lived with for such a long time is, um, you know, I, I, I'm a bad cat mom, right? Like, I basically sent her off to the vet to die. And it was, it's, it's so triggering for me losing that precious cat that I had, because she is just, she was the light that I had. She was so cuddly and so amazing. And as I'm thinking about this last night, I said, Becca, you got to write, you know, you just, you have to write this out. You have to work through it. You have all this built up anxiety and frustration and everything. And that's what I wrote about. I wrote about being in fight, flight, freeze and understanding, you know, from basically middle school until I was in, um, in, until this past year, I have been in sur some sense of survival in either hyper or hypo arousal state. And um, now that I'm finally practicing compassion, um, I'm experiencing grief. Mm -hmm. And grief is such a healthy emotion to experience that's extremely uncomfortable, right? Um, because I don't think I ever really truly grieved the loss of Canon. Mm -hmm. um, right two days after I got Canon, my best friend at the time said, Hey, I got you a cat. She's at your door. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, okay. And then I got Lucy and then I went to a therapist a year later and she, and that therapist was like, you should get another cat if you don't feel like you're connected with Lucy. So then I got another cat. And then I got a husband that was like, I want to get a cat. And so then I'm like sitting here, I'm like, but none of these cats are Canon and they don't love me the same way. And then I'm over here thinking to myself, that's grief. Right. And so I think if your goal in doing EMDR therapy is to not feel any emotions towards the trauma that has happened to you, then you're going to be extremely disappointed. The think the goal of EMDR therapy is to allow you to grieve the trauma that has happened to you and know like this wasn't your fault. You know, there's no... It, at the moment that I dropped Cannon off of the vet, the last thing that happened was that she was clawing at the strings of my hoodie and like meowing. Like she did not want to be handed over the vet, but what cat does, right? And it's like, I thought, well, that was foreshadowing. I should have known that she was going to die. No, I didn't know any of that, right? But our trauma brain connects these things. And 
even now it's like if i have a really good date night with my husband well it's probably means that he's going to die tomorrow because <laughs> that's just how it's going to go or if like i leave the house without saying goodbye to all of my cats and give them kisses then guess what the, one of them is going to be dead when i get home right um because of that that loss that i experienced so if you're going to emdr therapy and you're thinking oh this is going to alleviate everything and i'm going to feel 10 times better it's not necessarily that. It's going to give you what you need to work on mm -hmm. and what you need to understand about yourself. Just like I said, EMDR revealed to me that I am horrible with control, horrible with it, right? But I now know, hey, uh, there's some things I have to do. And I do that in ACT therapy. And I practice mindfulness, self-compassion now. And maybe I'll go back and use EMDR as a tool later. But if anything, it just helped me figure out what I needed to work on. Um, and that stuck feeling that your student is like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I feel like I'm talking it to death. Maybe they're talking about the wrong thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's really where we need to connect more <laughs> with our clients is like EMDR can help us unpack the thing that we really need to work on. And if as a therapist who practices EMDR, you think, oh, I'm going to help them get over this, then you're misguiding your clients, right? You're only here to help them figure out what it is that we need to work on in other modalities as well. And hopefully give them, allow them to tolerate that discomfort so that they can be there in that. Yes, yes, for sure. And I think that's another thing that it's like, just because you go through EMDR therapy, and this is why I I share so openly about my story and my struggles and everything, I still get triggered. I still have panic attacks. Um, I did not show my husband panic attacks until after we got married because I wanted to trap him. <laughs> but, you know, he loves that joke. He's like, oh, that's how original after five years. Um, but, you know, I definitely love to share this with people because I don't want them to ever feel like they're going to therapy to get over stuff. I want them to go to therapy to get through it and work on the installing those positive cognitions. Well, in addition to being, you know, a therapist and doing your clinical just one-to-one -one work, you also create courses and whatnot. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about the different kinds, because obviously you're happy, you're comfortable educating people about these things. So can you share a little bit about the other work that you're doing and creating these courses and who they're targeted, who they're, who might benefit from those? Yeah. So I am full of shenanigans, which means that I have created shenanigans courses. And when you take one of my shenanigan courses, you become part of the shenanigan squad. Okay. Um, but yes, I have a, um, I have a lot of online courses on my site. Um, I have four mini courses right now. One of them is on the window of tolerance. So if you have enjoyed listening to all the stuff about EMDR therapy today and you want to understand more about how your trauma brain works, then that would be a really good course course for you to start with. Um, I also have one on smart goals, one on the wise mind, which is a lot of dialectical behavioral therapy talk, um, and one on self-care versus self-comfort, which is my personal favorite because I think I'm the most funny in that one. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I also wanted to be a comedian when I was growing up, a minister comedian therapist. Um, so, I have four mini courses. They're about 30 minutes of video with a full-fledged workbook and journal prompts and all those kind of fun things um, for you to be able to connect with other people, you know, and um, 
I even tell people like print out the workbook and take it to therapy and tell them like, Hey, I did this course with Becca and um, this is what I learned. And now I want to learn more about that. And now the therapist is going to be able to communicate with you on a whole different level. So I have those four mini courses. And then I also have an extended course um, on anger management. So if any of you that are listening are court mandated to take anger management um, classes, or your family is mandating you to take anger management classes, I have that available on my website as well. Um, just make sure you talk to your judge or parole officer or lawyer first, because they they might be like, who this Becca chick? Um, but I have that available. And that one's really cool because that's from the perspective of someone that was, you know, from my perspective of being a victim of someone that had anger management problems. It's not just your typical clinical crap. Um, so I have that. Um, and I'm so excited because I love this podcast so much that I decided to give you guys a coupon code for 10% off all my mini courses. And so I know 10% is 10%, but you know, like y'all 10% is a big thing when you're like grassroots clinician over here, like help a sister out. Okay. Um, get on there and uh, use the code not allowed <laughs> and you can get on there and uh, um, check out some of my online courses for 10% off. When I love Becca, you said that it's, it's not like you do these home courses or you go to therapy. It's a combination. And if, if you're obviously the people who are listening to this podcast are the kind of people who are interested in mental health. Yeah. And if you're interested in mental health with obviously a little bit of humor in it, which I think for me, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, you know, so that, that's, you know, I think Becca, you're the perfect person to be helping to deliver these kind of concepts and ideas to make it a little bit more fun. So I hope some of you will uh, make sure you plug in that not allowed. So I yes. who sent you over there. Yeah, I was trying to make the code. And then I was like, NATD, that that's cool. But I was like, if I just do a code that's like, you get 10% off, but not allowed, then I'm like, that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> was there any other messages that you want to give to everyone else before we sign off here today that you just want to share with the audience? I really just want to provide some hope to all the people that are listening. Um, you know, I think that suicide prevention and awareness is so important. And if you're listening to this and you're just like, oh, this person said I'm not allowed to die. I should, <laughs> you know, I should listen to them. Listen to yourself too. trust, trust yourself. Um, I think you would be surprised with all the intrusive thoughts that you may be having because of all the things that you've experienced. I don't necessarily think your voice may be saying like, okay, well, it, dying would be easier, right? Um, but not necessarily, because living and sharing your story, once you start doing it, it makes a huge difference for a lot of people in this world. Um, so it's not just that you're not allowed to die. It's um, that you're allowed to tell your story. And um, if people get mad at you for doing it, you're doing the right thing. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to just share that hope. Um, people are allowed to tell their story. Yeah, and every one of you, your story matters and your place on this planet matters and we are better off with you. So thank you for that. So Becca, one more time, what is the website that people should go to, to find out more about you and to get connected? And I will also put, put a link to it in the show notes of this, but, um, where should people go to find, uh, those courses and more information about you? Yeah. So go to BeccaFergusonLPC.com um, and you can find all of the shenanigans that I have available on my website. I'm also going to be having some really cool group 
um, virtual group coaching that's going to be happening soon. That'll be across uh, state lines. So if you want to get in and you want to interact with me personally, then I'll be able to have those options available for people as well. So I can't wait to I can't wait to share that um, with you guys. Well, thank you so much. So for all the rest of you who are listening, remember, if you have a question for Mariska and me, email me at daniel.makler at live.com and do whatever it takes to get you through this world. And remember, you are just not allowed to die. <laughs>